Hello, Darcy. Hey, how's it going, Jeff? It is going quite well. Um, Welcome to RPG Rambling. So you're Jeff out Jones. of New Zealand, right? So we can right? show exploring the various details. Yeah, yeah. The tabletop we're RPG hobby through discussions the, within the RC people. Really fascinating. Today, Darcy Perry of Star <laughs> Hat. Well, I find it fascinating. I, I've uh, he started out I've sculpting miniatures and been mailing dive into um, publishing an RPG for Decktail Gary's collection. I noticed it followed miniatures. There's in other words for New Zealand being such a small country. There seems to be a three brothers. Great race time to get rambling. People into the into RPGs being from New Zealand. Yeah, and and I'm probably the second generation of that because I was born in '72, and as you know, of the history of role playing games going back, the early '70s was was when there was that crucible in Minnesota and that. So um, I'm definitely oh, actually it's Michigan. It's the lakes, right? Yeah, it's Lake Michigan, right? But in, in Wisconsin was uh, Lake Geneva's Wisconsin, on the other side of the lake from Michigan. But there was RPG stuff going on in various locations uh, in the Midwest. And so that 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 book, uh, sorry, those three books in that box set um, did get around the world. Uh, one of the things that happened was um, so I studied a little bit of the history. But I'm actually the next generation. I'm the one that started with fighting fantasy game books. They could because they appeared in the early '80s. They started appearing in school libraries. So as a child, I was able to um, to adventure with a solo game book. You know, fighting fantasy game books were very much like the early Tunnels and Trolls solo adventures, um, but they were written by a couple of British guys. Yeah, you know, Steve Jackson, the British Steve. Jackson. Right, exactly. The the doppelganger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and Ian Livingston, and um, yeah, I'm not too sure. Doppelganger, who's doppelganging who? I don't know. We'll we'll, we'll have to let them fight it out. Uh, but see who those, comes on those two, those two went and um, ordered a whole lot of uh, of this new game called Dungeons and Dragons, and then in Britain they were trying to sell it, you know, to people who are playing Monopoly and and well. Mainly, they were playing war games, so it was a new thing. And um, I met in my youth when I got to high school. By that time, I'd, I'd played Dungeons and Dragons because the red box set had come out, and that was ubiquitous. That D and D red box was everywhere. Um, and I met, you know, teachers that at university had been playing Dungeons and Dragons. So. Role playing very quickly exploded from America out into the world, um, and yeah. Although I'd started with fighting fantasy game books, it wasn't long before I was starting to play everything that was available, available, including GURPS, which is the other Steve Jackson we were talking about. So um, yeah, we played everything. Shido, uh, with um, so my English teacher Jeff Holland had a huge collection of board games and role playing games, and you know, we played Warhammer and all of the British sort of stuff, Dragon Warriors, um, and then we played this stuff out of America, like Dragon Quest and um, Quest. And yeah, it just expands. So how does New Zealand sort of fit into it? Well, we, I think per capita, are um, one of the highest buyers of magazines still. <laughs> so, so we're very uh, much into... Uh, you know, uh, having that tactile experience of, of reading or at least looking at pictures. 
Right, exactly. <laughs> the well, I think the thing is, is I, in my mind, years ago, I thought New Zealand was much closer to Australia than it is, uh, but it's actually quite far away. So, really, anything that comes to you is it's I mean, obviously same thing with Australia. You know, it's by boat. Um, so it's I'm sure there's a fair amount of expense for a lot of this stuff to get shipped in. It, it used to be cheaper. Um, recently, prices have gone up uh, definitely in in the states. Um, the uh, the situation with post I hear is not fantastic. <laughs> but um, when it comes to international um, shipping, um, things that used to take a couple of weeks for me to get to someone in America can take four weeks. Now, it's not as bad as Canada. Canada's you know, usually been struggling with a postal system that uh, needs some work. But I've got to know post quite intimately thanks to starting a miniatures company. And when you're sending a little box of miniatures around the world, you get to know <laughs> where customers will be waiting a while. <laughs> well, I think to me, the, the, the thing that's kind of scary um, is also when dealing with, uh, is I think especially dealing with the UK, not UK, but the European Union, uh, VAT taxes can vary from country to country from what I understand. Yeah. Um, so the UK had something interesting uh, they had the thing called Brexit. So they used to be very much in line with European sort of rules for um, customs, et cetera. And now they pay extra. <laughs> so <laughs> things things are not better. I, I think the, the government at the time said, hey, everything's going to be great. And, uh, and, and it's not. It's not better. Brexit wasn't a good idea. Um, <laughs> no, I think I think in not having studied it wildly, I think part of the issue may be I think there's people who are who who were uh not making a lot of money and knowing it felt like money was leaving, a lot of countries getting paid. So I think there's a certain feeling like, well, why aren't we just spending those money on our people rather than sending you know money to say Poland or Romania, wherever they were going. Yeah. And I think it was that, they didn't it was, a, it was definitely it was definitely sold like that. It was saying, "Hey, we're spending all of this money. Right, we're supporting Europe." But um, on paper, it's actually different. They were part of um, right. this um, system that included Europe, yes, including some of the poorer countries at the time, like Greece wasn't doing so well. Um, but they were better off <laughs> as part of the union. Right, because there's other things that they benefited from day to day they didn't see. Yeah, they didn't they didn't see it and they weren't sold it. And they were sold some lies too. There were some bold faced lies, but um but you know, that's politics and um that's governments. i I'm definitely on the other side of the world. So I look at things as to how it's affecting the people that are there that I'm doing business with. And, well, and effect, uh, right, it affects you how you're going to do your business. Like, for instance, you know, if you're if you're printing books, you have options, um, you know, through POD or whatever. Uh, but yeah. selling miniatures, not really. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> well, there's been a shift there too. So um, I started sculpting with putty, with green stuff, and probably because you've got some people who'll be watching this later. This will actually look quite messy. But um, there's there's blue stuff and there's yellowish stuff and you mix it together and you get green stuff. And um, I sculpt miniatures with that. Uh, I basically just put, put them on a cork and get going. 
Um, so you got to drink a bottle of wine every time you make a miniature? No, I have, I have some, <laughs> there's some family that gift me with these. Uh, okay. <laughs> His liver is shot, but boy, has he got a collection of miniatures. <laughs> yeah. And so they, they get cast, I get them cast, they come back in metal. Yeah. And, uh, and then um, that was blurry, but uh, everyone's seen a miniature before. Um, and then when the metal, of course, I, um, they're getting spin cast and they can be sent out. And, and then they can be painted by people around the world. Um, however, um, metal weighs a bit. So that's quite expensive on shipping too. So one of the things over uh, the last couple of years I've noticed, there's a lot of ums and ahs here, but I'm hoping people can pick up my accent. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking as I go, and as, as I'm thinking, I'm thinking, wow, the last few years have really been a struggle. But through that struggle, there have been ways around certain um, problems. And one of the big problems with casting miniatures is that not everyone can wait. People are very impatient nowadays. Those people have usually bought 3D printers. So there's a whole world of STL 3D printing miniatures available. Have been for years, but it's becoming cheaper to buy a 3D printer. So that means there's a larger market. Um, I started sculpting with ZBrush, and I was enjoying that. But there was going to be a little bit of a delay between... <laughs> where I could get to digitally and what I could do with putty. Um, and I joined up with Ill-Gotten Games. So those guys are in the States. They're in Washington, as in the state. Right. Uh, yeah, because there's Washington, D.C. as well. So, yeah, I, I know a bit about America <laughs> before we started. <laughs> and I've learned about America through Americans. Um, so uh, that's good, too. I get a good sort of broad picture of the whole place. Um, they're in Washington and they scan with a jewellery scanner miniatures and then you have that miniature that was only ever a physical item. Now right. it's a space. It can be downloaded by people and they can print it on their 3D printers. So that's been the big development. That's been the big shift for me in the last year. So but for you, so like for instance, you know, originally – uh, you would send these out. Um, you said spin casting, so you'd you'd send the, out the the the, um, the 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 sculpture made out of the green stuff. Yeah, and, and yeah. then they would make a casting out of it, and then they would make so many miniatures, however many ordered out of that casting, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and now so, it's a different model now because I have a. STL that I sell, and the person can print as many as they need. Right. Do you still do the metal as well? Yes. Yep. Still got a caster in the UK. He's got a little bit of a break at the moment because he's moved house. So he's setting up his new workshop and he's building it from the, the floorboards up. Um, but he'll be back in in production in January or February next year. So. So when yeah. you order, like, I'm sure there's different amounts you can order, but like, what's a typical amount of number of miniatures? Because obviously the setup is probably the most expensive. And then once you get going, um, you know, it's, it's cheaper by the piece at that point. But like, what's a typical oh, right. order? No, okay. 
So the business model is fascinating because that's the first thing. Six years ago, I did my first um, order to get things cast, and I got them done here in New Zealand, Greytown, um, which is in the North Island. We're, we're very basic here. We've named our... <laughs> Actually, you've done that in the States too, North America. We've got North Island and South Island. Right, yeah. <laughs> so he's towards the south of the North Island, and... Uh, that, the casting there was Regal Enterprises. So they cast um, from, actually, they make a mould first, plaster mould, and pour it, and then make castings from that. So they keep the green pretty much um, intact, whereas other casters often will put the green straight into the vulcanised rubber mould. So as two moulds come together, like an A and B. Yeah. And that's why miniatures are typically designed in such a way that um, you have uh, an, an a, a front and a back, shall we say. Miniatures typically look, classic miniatures typically look like you could put it between two pieces of bread. Right. <laughs> um, they don't tend to hold a sword out in front of them because then you've got this gap here, which is a problem. You could probably get them to hold it like this, and um, and then you know you've still got your A and B. So it's about having that design feature in mind when you're sculpting. You got you got so you, you, you have to work around for a metal. Yeah, and, and if you do do strict crazy things, then you just got to cut up the thing and have separate arms or, or a separate weapon or what have you. Um, I prefer to have one piece miniatures, and I like to make them pretty solid. So if they drop. They put a hole in the, uh, put a dent in the floor, not um, break. Right. <laughs> but uh, with, yeah, I, I suppose with the sculpting, a lot of things were natural because I'd spent 30 years or so painting miniatures before I started sculpting them. So it just seemed natural to do them in the way that I was used to. It's also kind of good to be a painter as well because as a miniature painter, you sort of work out what would be difficult to paint. So some miniatures are um, wonderful in the sense that they are really pleasing to the eye, but they're a bastard to paint because you brush somehow underneath the armpit to get at that little, um, you know, part of the flask or something that's hanging from a backpack. Um, anyway, it's, it came very natural. It was really exciting to, to get addicted to green stuff. Um, and it wasn't long before I'd um, I'd had a successful Kickstarter, and this comes back to the money side. Yes, it wasn't it wasn't cheap to cast miniatures. So each each miniature had to be sort of treated as an um, it would cost this much to get it through the production process, and a mold can take you know eight to 10 miniatures. So you're thinking, how many can I get into one mould, one spin right. mould? And then you're thinking, okay, how much does it cost per spin? How much is the metal? All of these things have gone up in price in the last six years. Um, definitely having a caster in the UK, I've seen Brexit affect that price as well. So um, it's not... The first thing I needed to do was get a caster outside of New Zealand <laughs> so that if someone made an order, I do have some stock here, but um, often I'll get stuff cast in the UK and sent from the UK. So how do you, how'd you go about finding a caster? 
Um, well, Facebook. <laughs> so, somebody already, so somebody's known for casting miniatures, done it for other people, and then they said, you know, so you didn't just go to some sort of like a random shop and just say, hey, can you do this? It was, it was a matter of seeing who other people have used for making minis. Yes, and, and it's a small world. Um, you'll find that, you know, people have an interest. Maybe it's Highland dancing. Maybe it's, um, you know, uh, bowling. Whatever the interest is, fly fishing. There is a huge community attached to that. And thanks to social media, you can connect with people in those, those communities no matter where they are in the world. So, you know, for, for good or bad. Right. <laughs> <laughs> connect with people on the other side of the world, which is great because that common interest um, and role-playing is huge around the world. And it has been. I, I don't think it really ever died. Um, maybe uh, what we've seen is a resurgence of, yes, people <laughs> around our age who have come back to the hobby and they come back in their um, late 30s or 40s uh, remembering what they were doing in the 80s and 90s. Um, but they've got more disposable income. <laughs> yeah, I think they're also the younger generation. Uh, there's definitely a much larger influx from the people, I like, say, in their 20s than there was back in our day. Right. And and I look at things like back when we were playing games on TV, there was the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon. Um, there were movies like Conan. Uh, there were hangovers from the 70s. Like I, my dad was big on um, The Goon Show and Monty Python. And Monty right. Python was being aired. So there was a lot of um, stuff during the late 80s, early 90s, which was um, things like Whose Line Is It Anyway type stuff. So interactive um, skit theatre type stuff. But nothing really compares to the impact Critical Role, for example, has had on this generation when it comes to role-playing games. If you go Dungeons and Dragons, often if they're younger, I'll hear, oh, did you, did you Critical Role? Right. <laughs> Connected that. And Critical Role is, you know, professional, but m much like I was mentioning Monty Python, they're professionals and they're role-playing, yes. Um, but I think... You know, for me, it's not as exciting watching Critical Role as it is actually playing a game. <laughs> right. <laughs> so so maybe maybe the context is different, but it's still the same excitement. Yeah, I, I think it's actually, at this point, when you're watching something, it's something different because you're yeah. not participating. Not that it's lesser, but it's, it's definitely more of a, a form of entertainment. However, it's entertainment that has all of the hallmarks of this role-playing game. Oh, right, right. You know, 40-something right. years. So it's it's not like they're just entertaining. It's like we've got a gnome, and <laughs> and he's a gnome, you know, whatever he is. Maybe oh, no, I don't, I don't disagree with their impact. I'm just saying it's just like it is kind of – it's kind of interesting. Whenever you're watching somebody else play a game, it's, it's you know, it it is something different. It's different than playing the game. It's also different than watching a movie. It's it's something unique. I don't know yeah. what it is. Yep. Um, and I mean, back in the day, you'd play Spaces. There was uh, Spaces and um, uh, what would you call it, like an arcade? 
Oh, yeah. yeah. You put coins in, and there are pinball machines, but more excitingly, there were there was Invaders and Ghosts and Goblins and um, Star Wars. And <laughs> sometimes it could be just as exciting to be standing next to the person who was losing their money <laughs> the just because he'd never seen it before. And I think there's some something in that too. Critical Role was bringing to a younger audience something that they'd never seen before because, they yeah, they'd had Pokemon or they'd had you know, these other things, but they hadn't had this thing that, oh, we could do that. Right. We they can participate in the same type of activity and have yeah. similar type experiences. So so I know some people uh, definitely around my age um, hassle critical role, but I just sort of see it for what it is, which is like a, uh, a godsend for role playing because it brings a whole new generation into into the fold. And then, yeah, a rising tide uh, uh, raises all boats. Boats, so it's uh, right. <laughs> it's not my <laughs> cup of tea, but I'm I'm glad it's there, and I think it definitely came out. I feel the same about time. Dungeons and Dragons. I love Dungeons and Dragons, um, and Dungeons and Dragons, like I said, way back. We're talking about Ian Levin, Ian Livingston, and Steve Jackson from the UK. Dungeons and Dragons helped them set up Games Workshop in the UK which is worth around $3 billion now on the... Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Actually, three billion pounds on the stock exchange. So um, I, I got a book recently that um, came through Dyson Men, and it's fascinating. It's another one of these thick books. Yeah. And, yeah, it's these guys. These guys here. And that's them holding the Dungeons & Dragons <laughs> books that they got. They, they actually went over in 76 to Gen Con um, and met Gary and and uh, said, yeah, yeah, because they were distributing his stuff in the, U- uh, in the UK. They still didn't have a place to live. <laughs> they were living out of a van. Um, but it's fascinating just looking at, I, I, won't, I won't bore you with this book um, because it's so exciting, but um, yeah, <laughs> I could yeah. easily just looking through and selling this book to you. It's just amazing because thanks to Dungeons and Dragons, there were there was tunnels and trolls, and then you know there was uh, Traveller, and and there was RuneQuest, and and it just keeps on going out and out and out. Um, one person uh, I work with, who I didn't really, I knew a little bit about, but you know when you start working with someone, you start to realise just how much they've been involved with. I did this with um, Janelle Jaquais. Oh, nice. And, and it is dark themed. It's yeah. Quack Keep for those that uh, can't see. <laughs> yes, yeah, so Quack Keep is, um, and it's got its own, you know, fold out screen. And all of the maps are, for the listeners, I'm showing some exquisite map making skills by, by, I would say, one of the best ever. Um, so Janelle did Dungeoneer, which was one of the first, if not the first, uh, magazine for oh, publication magazine type thing for, for role playing games, um, and did about two years work with Judges Guild to create um, Dark Tower, um, Caverns of Thracia, um, uh, Teagle Man, a whole whole lot of work. Uh, in fact, I've got. I've got that uh, special edition book that came out with a Kickstarter in it. <laughs> I was over at Game Hole Con and saw that book. I didn't realize it was a thing until I saw it there at Game Hole Con and 
kind of flip through it. Yeah, and I do have it. Um, actually, I've got it, I've got it behind the couch. I could show it to you, but um, yeah. it, it's huge. And and yeah, so produce that with Janelle, which is tied to a Kickstarter with obviously a lot of ducks in it. Um, and Kickstarters have been good for me. So uh, this has probably taken about fifteen minutes to say that yes, it costs money to make miniatures with a community. People are willing to invest in getting right. know, something like the look of. So so crowdfunding has been incredibly um, beneficial to right because you could you could you know easily uh, do a, a small amount yourself. You could you could you know. For a very small run for a couple of pieces, not a big deal. But once you get past probably a handful, uh, then it's turning into something more. And that's where you need to look at funding. Yeah, you, you want at least 50 to 100 people that are prepared to buy that set of miniatures. So whether it's like 20 miniatures um, or it's, you know, 10 miniatures, often when I've done Kickstarters, I've been sculpting at the same time. So that tends to make more work for me and also. Um, you know, create more miniatures. Um, yeah, you're, you're definitely looking at people who are really loving what you're doing because you love it. It's been a way for me to give back to a hobby that I've enjoyed my whole life, which is exciting too. So um, you, so you, just, you had a uh, thought you want to do these miniatures. So what was the tipping point for you to to take this to go to Kickstarter? Like, what's the point where you thought, yeah, this uh, kind of thing. I just thought. It, I could have painted the miniatures as they were. I'd used Tamiya um, quick epoxy putty, which is not green stuff. So it, it was a little tougher. When I got green stuff, I was like, wow, this, this putty's great. And there are other, other putties out there that have different properties. But I had sculpted 17, painted up sculpting 20 miniatures out of this Tamiya putty. And I could have just painted them. And they could have sat on my shelf and I go, wow, I did those. I wanted to share them and to share them, I just got excited about the idea of getting them cast. So I found a caster, found out how much it would cost, and then I went to Kickstarter because back in, gosh, when was this? Was this uh, 2016? 2017? Why don't I mean 2016? It was still. Um, yeah, it still seemed like a really good thing to do. I'm not too sure now <laughs> if I just jump into it, if I just done it. I'll probably look on the internet and go, man, there's so many great model makers out there and most of them are doing it digitally and why should I bother? But um, I took that step and I took that step in and was rewarded with a successful Kickstarter. So the challenges were rewarded. So I thought, well, I could do that again. And Kickstarters can get a bit addictive. So you've got to be careful there that you don't um, wear yourself out because the Kickstarter itself, um, yes, you've um, got the ability to share your creation, um, but just the management of a Kickstarter. That, and if you talk to anyone who's, who's in the business, whether it's um, miniatures or books, Crowdfunders are a two-edged two -edged sword because it takes a lot of effort to run a crowdfunder. And the more people you get, that's the more people you have to deliver to. So, Right. Well, so I, think it's, it's, yeah, I think especially with miniatures, and, and, and I'm assuming that your most of your backers would be in the U.S. 
between sixty and eighty percent. Yeah. Uh, so, so the, 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 your risk would be is probably shipping charges uh, changing. Um, so I did. I did work with um, John Popson, um, so F and Call Miniatures, um, and then uh, I had a Scottish caster as well, and then I moved into the UK into Twixbury. So um, I have had different casters. At one Kickstarter, I had three. Three casters, so one in the US, one here in New Zealand, and one in the UK, and uh, that helped for shipping, but it didn't help me. <laughs> so the costs of trying to organise all of that, and then anytime anything's travelling, if I'm sending greens and they're being shipped, and there's no backup, right? It's sending a one of a kind, right? So you're crossing your fingers. Joking, right. It's the Mona Lisa. It's not the copy of the Mona Lisa. It's the Mona Lisa. It's the Mona Lisa. And uh, it may not, you know, have the same price tag, but you probably spend 12 hours on a miniature from from the, the idea of it through to the completion of it. So you, you might do some sketches or what have you. I, I definitely find that um, I'll be working on more than one miniature at a time. So that helps. Um, because putty has to cure, etc., and you can just sort of put it, put that cork down, pick up another cork <laughs> or a bottle. Oh, open another bottle of wine. <laughs> <laughs> I should try that drinking yeah. and sculpting. I wonder what will come out of that. Maybe just uh, more drinking than sculpting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's there's a uh, process where you just keep doing the thing, and the more you do the thing, the better you get at it. Um, so it doesn't take me so long now, but definitely when I started, it was, I'd spend a, I could spend a good day or two on one miniature. Um, and so what I do is I'd have five or six on the go at once, and then you can just move between them. When you finish something on one thing, you put it aside and let it cure while you're working on something else. Um, and if I had extra green stuff left over, I'd just make a sword or something with it, you know? Right. So Lots of ways that you can sort of keep the creative juices flowing because you're not totally focused on one miniature and ideas come to you. And it's it's a wonderful, uh, you know, time just evaporates. Yeah, so you, you had a Kickstarter six years ago and it was successful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is, you know, it's great. And then it's like that stress of having to, Get it all together and set it out and i think that has never gone away and i did move away from miniatures for a kickstarter that came up where i went hey actually it was during a miniatures kickstarter i thought i'll try and get a book out and this isn't this is the printout of that book um the book's actually with exalted funeral now they're, they're the publisher and they're based in the states yeah so, so it's Duck, Duck Quest uh, is the is the book, and and ducks became one of those things that people keep asking for. So I do character ducks much in the same way as you know all the Smurfs are different, even though they're Smurfs. Right. <laughs> I was creating a Smurf village uh, filled with ducks, and so all the ducks were different. They had their own personalities, and the miniatures are character miniatures, which I think is what role playing is about. Um, even if you're not using them on the on a board of some sort you could have your 
miniature representing your character and you kind of get an idea of you know who they are by how they look so there's that that connection goes way back to when i was collecting grenadier miniatures um and the, you know the little box sets and the blister packs and the citadel miniatures which is the you know the uk version right um and a whole lot of other companies yeah you know, and some of them are still around like reaper reaper's still around uh, grenadier is not still around but the the molds are still around and other companies have bought those molds so grenadier the company is gone but those miniatures are still being cast you can still collect miniatures that were sculpted and cast in the 70s and 80s um that's the other side of it collecting <laughs> and i can see by that shelf behind you that you, you're a collector as well <laughs> yes i think as people we just collect stuff whatever it may be yeah but quality stuff stuff that you're passionate about you know stuff that you want to pick up off the shelf and leaf through and yeah. um that's what you're aiming to um put yourself in there you know your love of the hobby you want that in every sculpt or you know as i started writing um and worked out that i could do it uh and drawing um which i hadn't done for quite a while <laughs> so that was another skill to hone um yeah yeah there's lots of ways that you can contribute uh it is exciting to get something in the post yeah i i you know the i think what i found out is writing is just a matter of the hard part is just doing it <laughs> it's like <laughs> and and there's a discipline to that um it's really just actually you have to sit down you dedicate this is the, my writing time oh. and then you get the other thing you can do is you can carry a little notebook around with you and just write down ideas that come to you because they'll come to you any time of day yeah that doesn't really i don't work that way i don't know i just sit down to start writing whatever it is i i don't plan ahead maybe it'd be better if i did I usually try not to think yeah, about anything yeah. while I'm writing, which is weird. So, so planning here. So, there's two. I, well, there's probably many ways to to get this get this done. But on the writing side of things, I sort of see there are the architects that plan it all out, and then there's more like the the home gardener who <laughs> plants some stuff and then just sees what works and then does some pruning. <laughs> and then, you know, so there's this sort of uh, more organic approach, but you tidy it up later. And the architect is actually thinking, okay, well, it's going to have this, 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 and this, and they knock it out, you know, very much to that original plan. Um, I'm definitely the home gardener. Yeah, I think in some ways <laughs> I, I do have a plan, but it the plan's more of, like I'm going to write this enclave, and this enclave is going to be on this theme, and maybe I'm going to have X number of NPCs, but I don't know really what's the NPCs are. Going to. So what I do is then I randomly generate uh, attributes uh, for the NPCs as far as psychological attributes, yeah. and then once I tie those down, then I just make stuff up based on those attributes. And so all of this comes out of that wargaming approach to writing a role-playing game. So, you know, the, 
this is what the these are what the types of troops will be. These are the certain attributes to the the troops to the weapon type to the movement. Yeah. And it sort of moved into while you're in the wilderness, this is a, a swamp. So these are the sort of creatures you might find in the swamp. These are all really great little tool sets or you know tools that you can put into your toolbox when you're writing. And I think it's crossed over into mainstream writing as well. Um, yeah, generally, uh, it's a mix of story. I mean, you're coming up, like you said, with a theme. It's a mix of story, um, but there's also an element of, well, I can just um, generate some NPCs. Right. <laughs> Which are non-player characters, and they mean something different, you know? But in a movie, they might be called extras. Right. And there, there's a role-playing game that does that. Um, now, what's that? Uh, Savage Worlds? Savage Worlds has that sort of element where it's it's a skirmish game. But you essentially got your hero characters, and then you've got these other characters that are, are kind of like extras. Um, they don't have the wild die. They don't have certain elements you have. And NPCs in Dungeons and Dragons, I think, have more and more become just like player characters. <laughs> oh yeah, they Whereas definitely. Before, yeah. More like monsters. Well, yeah. If you're going back to the um, the um, village of Hamlet, it's yeah the people in a house, and they tell you how much gold they've got. Which it's like, what are you signaling here? <laughs> Players well, are supposed to go around every single person. <laughs> I think that's very much the way Gary wrote. He, yeah. he went, okay, well, got a dagger and they've got, <laughs> but he also little things like it is a family in the house. Right. So, so some of the stuff isn't written down because you're naturally supposed to think the same way Gary was thinking. Right. Exactly. And you might that way if you're a teenager, <laughs> but as an adult with kids, I'm thinking, oh, this guy's in the house. It's a family. There'll be a family dynamic. When it comes to role-playing that out, I've got a whole lot of stuff I can draw on. But when I was a teenager, I'd be like, oh, yeah, they've got some gold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy. So, <laughs> yeah. So how, I think many, how many shopkeepers have been attacked by teenage role-players? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but But as adults. It's like, oh, there's there's a wonderful um, analogy. Tom and Jerry, you know, Tom and Jerry, uh, I mean, it's it's so important in the whole history of, of cartoons, Tom and Jerry. But there's that um, constant antagonizing going on where the, the cat wants to get the mouse, but the mouse is actually the one doing all the horrible stuff to the right, cat. Exactly. <laughs> and and they they did a uh, a play on that in Simpsons, you know, that it's <laughs> and Scratchy. So so you've got that. I think when you're young, you're like seeing the mouse as the hero, but when you're older, you're going, man, I'm living that cat's life. Exactly. Um, it's uh, and I think too, it's it's um, you know, obviously, you know the the age of game. I mean things have changed over the years and really for him to actually put those people in homes really kind of demonstrates, you know, a kind of a, a different way of thinking than what was being presented beforehand. I've got a dog. I've got to let in just, um, no, no worries. I just let the dog in. 
she's outside the door starting to whine. Um, so, so you decided to uh, so you decided to do Duck Quest. What's the impetus for starting Duck Quest? So Duck Quest was um, hey ducks are in other role playing games. Um, I've mentioned Janelle Duquet. She um, wrote and drew Dungeoneer, and then did a lot of art for RuneQuest and became the duck person because <laughs> there were ducks in RuneQuest. Oh, yeah. There were ducks in RuneQuest. Greg Stafford um, yeah, for Glorantha was a, a fan of um, Carl Barks, who drew ducks for Disney. You know, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, and Uncle Scrooge. <laughs> so, you know, what, what's really bizarre, probably one of the most... Yeah, well, straight-faced, serious RPG out there. And they yeah. stick, you know, he stuck ducks in there, which is, you know, just kind of... Uh, which people love or hate. I mean, yes. some people play room and don't have ducks. But in the same way, some people play Dungeons & Dragons and go, no hobbits. <laughs> right. No elves. And, and Greg, Greg was saying, I don't want hobbits, but I'll have something like a hobbit, something that's, you know, pretty ineffectual in combat. And as a bit of a joke. So uh, I like ducks. So he threw ducks in. And the ducks um, Janelle drew um, are oh, just amazing. And I suppose no matter where you go, you know, there'll be people who are very serious about role playing and they're dwarves and they're elves and, they're, you know, <laughs> the whole way the world fits together. And it's not, it starts out like cooking, but it looks more like Monty Python. Um, when you're actually playing it, uh, ducks don't fit into their idea of how to do it. But there are others that go, yeah, I'm playing a duck. And those people were the ones that were, you know, quacking at me. So, <laughs> so I was like, well, okay, you know, because why not? I'll sculpt a duck and I sculpted another duck. Um, and then there were like five ducks and a Kickstarter that had basically dungeon dwellers. Um, and, you know, dungeon crawling type adventurers and the five ducks and then those five ducks turned into the next kickstarter which was quack keep quack keep was working with janelle and that produced oh, i don't know probably at least another 20 ducks <laughs> it was uh, i mean it's after that it's um so i was drawing ducks then um yeah ducks have become like that thing some people uh it's goblins and they right. get known for goblins. I got known for sculpting ducks. Um, I didn't plan that. It wasn't on the cards. I didn't go, yeah, I need to sculpt some ducks. Yes, you you people... fulfilled the, the hopes and dreams you had as a young boy. One day, yeah. <laughs> One I day. will achieve the pinnacle. <laughs> so I was into Hobbits, yeah. Um, I played the old elf. Uh, quite liked dwarves, especially if they were... Uh, no, not quite like the average dwarf, um, maybe a dwarf barbarian or something. All of these things that I enjoyed as a kid uh, were perhaps channeled into a more foul creature. <laughs> so once again, back to it, just like Smurfs, just giving every duck their own character, giving them something more than just being like a joke. So Duck Quest was about taking those um, 
you know, there'd be one duck in a party or something, or they might come across a duck village. Imagine a whole world of ducks where ducks are the, you know, main colonizers. Right. <laughs> They're the ones that are out there, you know, just like how Gary Gygax said that humans, he was a human centric fantasy world. Greyhawk was human centric. And, um, and the other uh, creatures, uh, you know, humans were the main one, then the elves, dwarves, halflings, the demi-human, which is a fascinating word. Right. Because, de- you know, it's like less than, really. <laughs> so, so they're there, but they're not as important. Even the elves were more diminutive as well. The elves were shorter than human. Um, so, yeah, I went ducks, and I went, okay, well, if we've got ducks, we can have squirrels. And, you know, anything else anyone wants to play. So I opened it up. I said, okay, I'm not going to have a serious role-playing game. You're not going to argue about how tall an elf is <laughs> or whether female dwarves have beards. None of that no. stuff. It's gonna, you're going to know right from the outset that you're playing a duck and, therefore, it's silly. It's, <laughs> it's not serious. You can have serious fun playing this game. But you can't enter into it going, okay, well, we're going to have a proper campaign. Right. <laughs> You're playing a duck. Um, but you might be playing a squirrel uh, or an otter or something else. And, and I think that speaks to the way we anthropomorphize different animals. And people have their favorite animals. So you see that in Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, how many? There's cat people and there's. Uh, <laughs> Dragonborn, yeah, lizards, yeah. Oh no, the dragons. But um, but yeah, even robots, right? And I have that. I have that. And um, see, I got some great. Uh, I I did a lot of drawing, and I got some great artists. And one was Chet Minton, and um, Chet Minton does coloring art. So he does coloring books, lots of fantastic line art. Um, and I was just thinking, I probably. Quickly flick through the book here. Uh, yeah, you can play a robot. Well, sure enough. Yep. A, a duck robot. So the idea was um, to have not just four classes, but to sort of say, hey, think of something you really want to play and then duckify it. So, yeah, hey, you like Indiana Jones, but you also like. Um, Maybe you're like Alita, the uh, battle angel. <laughs> so you just mix them together and you've got, you know, this robot um, archaeologist. There's, I mean, there's no real rules about what you want to play. The only rule is that you're at the table to have fun. With so what group. sort of mechanics so did you go for in this game? What's that? So with the game mechanics, like what sort of engines driving uh, the game? Okay, so it works on the um, it works on ducks. Uh, you got to have a duck. It's a no ducks is a dramatic universal um, cosmic charm okay. system. <laughs> I say, boy, you have to have some ducks. That could make it kind of tricky. <laughs> it's a game of no, duck, duck, um, goose. Whoever sits it's down, very much, it's, or duck, duck, gray. I hear in some places in the states they say duck, duck. Great. 
This is a goose. So he's uh, the D20 is there um, because it's just so easy to roll a D20. You've got the same sort of idea of a one being horrible and a 20 being great. Um, you're kind of working to a target number. I don't know if you splice this later on. Oh, I will. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, when it comes to Duck Quest, the, the idea is to have it just like an ordinary role-playing game. It's got quack tributes instead of attributes. So you've got quickness, ugly, arcana, fool, and kismet. And each one of those gives you a bonus to that D20 roll. So you start with five, four, three, two, and one as numbers that you assign to each of those quack tributes. So rolling up your character is very quick. You just have to decide what you're really good at and what you're not so great at. And then uh, you write that number next to the quack tribute. Uh, I I had a uh, one of these conversations <laughs> because I'm not in the States, but I had a, a good talk with Tim Kask at the beginning of, uh, gosh, it was the beginning of this year. Surely not. Time's just flown by. Um, and Tim really liked that. He liked the fact that you could, get your character going really quick. Um, the, the attributes might sound funny, but they operate just like any other role-playing game. Ugly is kind of like your tough fighting stat. So anything that involves brute strength or, um, you know, when basically when things get ugly. Right. <laughs> I wanted to tie it into the ugly duckling as well, which is <laughs> another sort of thing. It's like constant wordplay. So there's a bonus in the game even where you get this loose goose bonus. If you do something that makes everyone at the table laugh, then you can, for your next roll, use a D30 instead of a D20. So there are things, mechanics within the game that promote the seeking of enjoyment. So that's not seeking of enjoyment selfishly for one player, right. but for the group as a whole. Right? And that could be some heroic last stand with a bit of a gag attached to it, you know, some sort of um, uh, pun or play on words during the game or, or anything that just tickles the funny bone of other people at the, at the table. You can get the game master to laugh. And why is that important? Well, is this, is this because, um, you know, we need more of it? No, I think it happens at gaming tables anyway. I just wanted to make sure that the focus was, hey, this is a silly game. This is a beer and pretzels game. This is, you know, not that serious. There is a level system. It's called kudos or kudos. And essentially, once you've completed a quest, you gain a level. <laughs> and you get to assign an, uh, one point to one of your attributes. So that's your advancement system. Um, your character also has uh, some other stats on the character sheet basically your heart and your psych, which is kind of like a body-mind type match. Um, and then there's, you know, some three different things you're particularly good at. It might not be a normal skill. It might be actually be something like a grudge or, you know, some sort of mental thing, or it might be a connection that you have, um, kind of like advantages and disadvantages in GURPS, except that anything you put on your character sheet should be something that you can use to try and get the game master 
allow you an advantage in the situation, even if it sounds negative. Um, you know, you might have a fear of something, but you work that in your character's advantage. It's not really failing forward. It's more like um, just trying to bribe the game master into everyone having a, a better time. Right. Uh, yeah, and and I've seen it recently. There are some games that are coming out where uh, they've got a, gone away with fumbles. There's um, fumbles and that, they're not fun, um, but, you know, critical successes are. And <laughs> I don't mind. I don't mind how people play this game. They can play it however they want. But I was writing it from a place of, you've just managed to get together at the table. When you're in your 40s, that's not an easy thing to do. Everyone's got other commitments. So why not just have two hours or so and just enjoy yourselves? So enjoy the experience. And that's what Dark Quest is about. It's not serious. It wasn't written in, in a way where I was thinking, finally, that game about ducks that I really needed to make. It was more about, hey, imagine a world where ducks, instead of being the comic element, are the main event. <laughs> so was this was this uh, part of it? You're saying this was part of another Kickstarter, or is this its own Kickstarter? Uh, it was part of another Kickstarter. It was part of Duck Quest, um, which was essentially a whole lot of, like Hero Quest, I was creating little characters. If you could play Hero Quest with ducks. But that expanded after three weeks into it. I said, I could probably write a role-playing game for this. <laughs> Some people would ask, hey, is there going to be a game? And I went, oh, I don't really want to make a board game. Uh, even though I make miniatures, that's a crazy thing. I, right. Board games go together great. Um, it was more like, oh, well, maybe I'll write that role-playing game that everyone you know, always thought that when they were a kid, they probably started their own how many role-playing games have I written and never published? So, yeah, I can write a role-playing game. It was a lot harder <laughs> to finish writing a role-playing game than to start writing a role-playing game. Right. So it took a while. It took a while. Because there's a lot uh, of not interesting things you do have to write for a role-playing game. Yeah, you go, oh, uh, so what happens if they need to, you know, in this situation? Or, oh, I'm going to need some tables. Right. <laughs> and I'm not really a big fan of huge amounts of random tables. I think that's something that game masters can do themselves. Um, I definitely don't like a book picked up during play. Right. <laughs> so hang on, everyone. I know we're in the middle of something exciting, but I'll just pick up this book and we'll just see what the spell does. Hang on. Okay, we'll roll this, we'll roll that. It sort of like breaks the whole... I, I don't even have spellists in Duck Quest. So everything is done on the fly. Um, uh, no pun intended. Some... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've tried, I, I tried to cut down on the puns. Yes. And... <laughs> but yes, um, we're winging it. Basically. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and, and by doing that, um, it encourages people to think outside of yeah, oh, this is my spell that handles this problem. Instead of going, oh, I could use magic. And then and then they have to think you know, like that. And not everyone's going to be in the, that sort of game. Um, if you're not that sort of um, player, you know, everyone has their own way to play. This game isn't like written saying, hey, 
you've all got to do it this way. But essentially it's saying, hey, why not try it without spell lists and see how you go? And I think it encourages people to come up with zanier things. They might think of something they saw in a movie or read in a book, as opposed to, uh, because Dungeons and Dragons has almost become its own like set brick and mortar, <laughs> you know, solid thing. Um, what's a good example? Okay, a, a warlock in Dungeons and Dragons is going to cast Eldritch Blast at some point, if not every round. <laughs> it's just, it just becomes predictable. Yes. And um, <laughs> and that means that the, the, the warlock at your table and at somebody else's table is probably going to do the same thing because that's pretty much what they're set in stone, right? So, yeah, imagine if they did other things as well. Yeah, it's kind of interesting <laughs> because that was supposed to be you know, combat was supposed to be the purview of the of the fighters, but then I think somebody said, "Well, magic users want to have fun in combat too, so let's just let them shoot over and over again." Like, or before you had a crossbow, and, and, you, you would be that'd be it. You shoot your crossbow, and then you'd be yeah. Stepping. Time trying it's to a, it's it. a, the crossbow was interesting. I remember in third edition when suddenly. The wizard had a crossbow because people were actually got sick of casting a spell and then had nothing else to do. Yeah. So <laughs> they're like, but I, I still want to because it became about damage per round. You know, right. it, it was a total switch on this whole idea of let's role play. And it was more like, how can I create the ultimate build? Well, I threw that out the window and said, make something fun. And and it doesn't have to be, you know, you could be an old duck with a walking cane and <laughs> you just hit people on the head with a walking cane. Right. There's no, there's, you know, or you trip people up with it. But there's no rules on on grappling or tripping people up. Uh, it, it's more, you say what you want to do. Yeah, it's, opposed- it's flavor, really. You you you, you yeah. buy flavor text. You do yeah. this, how, you, how it occurs is up to you. And I'd rather have someone like, uh, I pull the tablecloth and throw it over the head. <laughs> then, okay, uh, I stab them with the dagger. Right. Do I hit? <laughs> so, um, yeah, you want to create memorable experiences. But this is, once again, this is the philosophy behind the game. People are going to play this game however they like. Um, I'm hoping that there's enough um, of myself in there that they don't take it too seriously. <laughs> Well, I don't, I don't think so. It looks like Howard the Duck in armor, so I think people probably are pretty well. And a lot of people go, oh, um, they go, yeah, Jimbo, you know, the, the rabbit. Or they yeah, go, I want to play Jimbo. Howard the Duck. Yeah. Uh, or they, they want to do something, you know, well, weird. Or they come up with their own thing, and that's great too. Well, um, you got the they, turtles, so that kind of also was the whole anthropomorphic uh you know, yeah. thing as well, where it became, you know, originally it was much more serious and later on, it, well, much more mature, we'll say, graphic. And then it turned into something a little bit more kinder. But uh, yeah, well, definitely um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was uh, adult graphic novel. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that's not how most people encountered it first. They encountered no, it no. through. <laughs> So it can be a shock <laughs> to see the origins. Um, 
Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I like it. So, so essentially, that's me in a nutshell. That's where I am now. I've I've put in a nutshell. That's a squirrel. Um, it is. Um, so if we if we look at Duck Quest, Duck Quest has um, the Banshee of Billfort, which is also out with Exalted Funeral. So um, I mentioned them earlier. They're printing and um, they're my publisher, the printing and the distributing. So they have a solicitor, which is in, in New Zealand, a solicitor is someone you get if you want to do something legal. Right. It's, it's you know, not normally going to, it's going to cost you a bit of money. But in the States, solicitation, or not solicitation, but having a solicitor is about getting stuff out there. So it will be in bookstores next year, which is great. There's like 400 bookstores that they, they um, put books on shelves for, uh, you know, for a, a guy, a little guy here in New Zealand. It's exciting to be actually out there on on American bookshelves. Hey, <laughs> so so you said the solicitor. Uh, so this is through Exalted, or you hired a solicitor, or, or how that work? No, so Exalted Exalted have their own. Actually, I don't know if this was a non disclosure. Oh, but essentially, yeah. their, their their deal with me is that I've give them the the book and they print it and they they actually take it out to oh i see um, they've got their own trade magazines and they go out to stores so there's a process they have on putting um their books out the first three months it's just available through the web store so you can buy it and people have been which is great um it's actually on their front page Featured just below their Monty Python Kickstarter they've been running, which is not a role-playing game. Yes. <laughs> and I think it has the same tone, which is, you know, right. that Monty Python idea that, uh, well, this is just getting too silly. Well, I think you also paid just... money for good cover art, oh, so I think sorry. that helps uh, carry it as well. Oh, yeah, I'm just, I'm getting it because of all of the, uh, yeah, the nostalgia value. It's, no, no. I mean, as far as uh, deck quest, I think the covers is pretty. You definitely put. It looks like you put money into that cover in a way that looks very professional. And I mean, it looks so. That's ready to go. Yeah, that's Johnson, who also has done cover art for Dragon Warriors and for um, Warhammer and for Warhammer Historic and for the One Ring and for. Um... Wow. <laughs> He's done a lot of. Uh, great, great art, um, John Hodgson. He's he's a British. Uh, he's UK living in Scotland, but he's a, he's English. And um, yeah, fascinating. That just you know you just you want an artist, you just contact them on Facebook and yes, <laughs> see I can put you in, find out how much. Yes, <laughs> and you get over. Well, I, I, I usually bit. find I usually find I have to go through the sticker shock first. And then I got to go through the five stages of grief. And then I finally reconciled and like, okay, that makes sense. I'll pay it. <laughs> yeah. You just ask for a, um, they have a uh, card, um, you know, for the different types. Because I, I mean, I could have got them to do a sketch. Yeah. Um, and it'll be a lot cheaper. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. With that cover, I knew what I wanted. And then I knew the style I wanted. So then you just find that person. Right. I think that cover lends itself well for, uh, for mass market. Yeah. Yep. 
and definitely um, it, those those characters on the front are actually miniatures I'd sculpted. So um, I actually did a mock up for him with <laughs> some some bits of cardboard and the miniatures sitting on me. <laughs> Stairs said, kind of like this, <laughs> and then we went from there. <laughs> so it's funny how something you know art is used to inspire art, but um, it all comes back to Hero Quest, really. I just thought, oh, it'd be great if I did a little duck version of Hero Quest, yeah, and I made that board game because why do you need to remake Hero Quest? You don't, I've got, I've got Hero Quest, right? <laughs> just roll it out, it's great, and the kids loved it. Um, because it doesn't require, you know, it's really easy to get into your request. Um, it doesn't require a whole lot of thinking about attributes and stuff like that. You know, it's, there's movement and there's a small combat system. And that's it. Um, and you can replay that game over and over again because the board, you know, enables you to have different types of dungeon. Right. Um, it's, a, it's a game in a box. Um, but yeah, yeah, Duck Quest is, is slightly different. It created the whole world of Aqualunia, which is a map you get um, with the book. And Aqualunia is kind of my Aqualunia is my pun on <laughs> the world of Conan. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's why you go Aqualunia. Is that how you pronounce it? No, that's how you pronounce it when you're. <laughs> Having fun. But yeah, so, there's that Hyborian element, but you're just throwing ducks in there. Right. So you got you have plans. The of the yeah. You have plans for a future uh, expansion of uh, of this, or are you is this pretty much as far as the the pen and paper RPG stuff? Yeah, so um pen and paper RPG is is where I'm at at the moment. A lot of people are playing it um online. Um, online something that, you know, over the last few years has become huge. And the online theater of the mind is just fast, uh, you know, it's fantastic because it's, it's quick moving. Right. Um, I put this out on Roll20, I suppose. That would be the next step, um, which would require a lot of work. Everything seems to require a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> the, the problem, I think, is the reason I would be not, not counseling you this way, but it's not just even you putting it out on there, but it's also then you have to support it. Exactly. So with this, there's definitely the the first um, published adventure is out, which is great. That was a Kickstarter. And it was a Kickstarter I did as a PDF because um, I didn't want to go through the hassle of trying to get everything printed and then send out around the world. Um, so the PDF turned out to be 60 four pages <laughs> in a zine format so it's really packed in yeah um but right as a printed book so that's um the banshee of billfort and the banshee of billfort is um the first so there will have to be another one and that's why i've started writing funnily enough you said homlet before i've got the village of omelet ah that's funny yeah so <laughs> <laughs> It'll be near the pretty uh, dark the though for 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 the the uh, setting though. It's okay. It'll be near the temple of existential. Uh. <laughs> That's existential. Yeah. Um, so there's yeah, it's you say oh that's pretty dark, but it's actually just pretty duck. 
Ah, and, there uh, you go. <laughs> it's a game of light and dark. And we'll be able to um, put some comedy in there and some humour um, because it's kind of like Scooby-Doo. It's kind of like, um, you know, uh, DuckTales. All right, you, exactly. you can You can take serious things and you can filter them through comedy and um, you can still get the message across, you know. Yeah. Um, it sounds great. It sounds kind of like what we need. We, we, we don't need, I guess, more just more dark and gritty of what we already have. It's kind of nice to see people, you know, branching out and providing, you know, different venues. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not grim dark. It's grim dark. Or it's, I think a tagline, a duckly humorous game of epic adventure. It's it's to try and take that thing and that, you know, that real gritty. Because, I mean, there's Mortborg. If you want to play death metal, role-playing games, they're out there. Right. <laughs> you can do that. I just sort of find it boring. <laughs> just after after you look at, you know, you look at it and you go, wow, this is this is fantastic. The art's fantastic, the layout, and, you know, it's really gritty and dark and stuff. But um, I don't think it makes for a long campaign because it's just a bit, uh, yeah, I don't want to hassle Morborg. <laughs> no. I can say that there's Duckborg. So they actually put out a duck game. <laughs> that is crazy. <laughs> is. Hey, look, I've I've had a great time. I uh, I really appreciate this, Jeffrey. Thank well, I'm you glad so you uh, you've uh, uh, you knocked at the door. It's, it's good to. Uh, it's kind of good to have some people uh, approach and and with fun projects that uh, I may not necessarily know about. Well, yeah, it was Father Goose that sent me your way, Jeremy. Who, um, yeah, obviously by his tag. Yes. Bruce is uh, completely um, into anthropomorphic role-playing. Um, but, yeah, I really appreciated having a chat to you. And you're in Illinois. I am in Illinois. I'm south of Chicago by a couple hours. Stuff. That's where I'm in. I'm a great fan of the blues. Ah. And, yeah, so St. Louis would be uh, probably a couple hours south of us. And then, and then uh, of course, New Orleans and such would be even further south. But uh, pretty much directly straight south. Yeah, I definitely. I mean, Mississippi, yes, but um, Shakara Blues, uh, you know, the Chess Records and and all the artists out of that, Willie Dixon and and Buddy Guy and Muddy Waters and then you know people right. in Chicago. But um, yeah, that Chicago blues scene um, is still very much something I listen to. <laughs> And and you know, and my kids listen to music on Spotify. They don't care when it was. Right. Let's know that it sounds good now. So, yes. Yeah. Oh, excellent. So anyway, I, let me know when you do your next Kickstarter. Maybe we'll if I've got an opening, we'll we'll shoehorn you in. Hey, that's great. And um, yeah, for those that that missed the last one, they, you know the 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 rewards are actually available now in the US, so you can actually just get hold of Exalted. I know that they're going to have a special with this um, Black Friday thing. This film. Oh, there you so go. You just, buy now, buy cheap. Just, yeah, just wait a few days, and I think their Black Black Friday thing will kick in. They'll get they'll get some money off. Um, yeah, it's fascinating because that's worldwide. We don't even have Thanksgiving, and there are Black Fridays. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, but hey, I'll, I'll let you go. Thank you so much. Yes, and uh, you take care, Darcy.
Happy gaming. Well, thank you, Darcy. Yeah, cool. That was great. I yeah, thought. I'll probably drop this in a couple of weeks. Yeah, and you can edit it however you want. Um, and if my accent's, you know, a bit strange, you can just put it through that filter. There you uh, go. <laughs> no, it's actually pretty good. I spent seven weeks in Northern Ireland, and that accent is hard to 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 comprehend. Oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> my my um, yeah, my stepdad's Irish. He's been here since the seventies, um, but uh, he still sounds Irish. so they even know they have to they'd have it's it's, i told people i thought i could pick up the accent when i was there but it's not the accent they they mumble and they do weird stuff with words so it's kind of a combination of speaking fast mumbling and then and smashing words together you know shortening them so anyway well Well, yeah We've, we've, um, we've been able to understand each other, and I really appreciate this. Um, it's, I just thought it was good to let people know that, yes, there's a new role-playing game out, and it's difficult as a Kiwi. Often we don't um, you know, tell everyone stuff, right. make stuff, and you know someone might like it. <laughs> so they actually thought it'd be the person who has to go, hey, yeah, I made something. You might no, like it. I don't mind at all. In fact, I wish I was more that way when I'm trying to sell my wares. I, I tend to not be that way. But for me, well, it, oh, go if, ahead. You, if you've got anything, you want me to share it on my socials to the 20 odd people that okay. give me a lot. <laughs> do that. We'll um, do. Quite happy to, uh, to put posts up on anything you put out. So just hit me up on the messenger and I'll send it out through. You know, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. Okay. Um, Sounds great, Darcy. Yeah, yeah. I hear what you're saying. It's difficult to sort of go. Oh, yeah, I made something. But made but for something. me, it makes it easier when somebody want it, it. Sometimes it's you contact people. You're waiting for people to contact you back, and sometimes people don't respond. And you know, it's just like where somebody says, "Hey, I want to be on." Like, okay, that's easy. <laughs> <laughs> I call it pulling and pushing. A lot yep. of times, I'm pulling guests, but if a, if a, if a guest pushes themselves it, it takes less energy i don't have to drew any energy you're already pushing the energy towards me to, to oh i can talk for ages it's taken us five minutes to say goodbye <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay i'll leave it there all right take care darcy okay, have a great day <laughs>